I'm Lauren. I'm Catherine. And I'm Danielle. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, where we're unraveling the interconnected systems and paradigms that are holding us back from a just and sustainable apparel and home industry. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Danielle. Hi. So here we are at our first episode, and I'm really so excited that we're finally having this conversation. Same. We've been talking about this project since the very beginning of the pandemic and for, you know, much longer than that even. And we represent such different perspectives being in Milan, LA, New York. I think it'll be really interesting to have this conversation all together today. Yeah. So today we're focusing on the pandemic and how it's magnified the pre-existing dysfunctions that we are seeing in the industry. Let's get into it. Catherine, you were in New York when the pandemic hit the U.S. What did you see happening at Brands? Oh my gosh, this was such a weird time in New York City. You know, everyone started working from home, many with their kids at home. So many people were trying to figure out what a new office situation looked like. And we, you know, would send emails to a brand and not even know if someone was still in their position or whether or not they'd been furloughed. Even just walking around the city, seeing all the storefronts closed was just the weirdest ghost town feeling. And, you know, not too long after that, we saw clothing sales fall about 80%. It was the largest decrease on record that we've ever seen in the industry. And the luxury market is likely to lose around 65 to $75 billion in sales this year. As an indicator of this, the beauty industry looks like it's going to decline about 30 to 35%. And then shortly after that, J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, Brooks Brothers, JCPenney, all filed for bankruptcy in what seemed like this massive domino effect of COVID. Gap couldn't even pay rent on their stores, and brands were cutting employees left and right. It was so crazy to find out that PVH had furloughed all of their employees until all the way to the end of July. And now we're seeing smaller brands start to skip their fall 2020 collections. I mean, the the ripple effects are really resounding throughout the supply chain. And I think one of the biggest things that we saw was really that larger brands were kind of part of this archaic system where they started sourcing too late. Their supply chain was so inflexible that the shocks that hit the system as a whole, they weren't actually able to withstand. And I'm curious, Danielle, I mean, that's the the brand side of what I saw in New York, but what did you see in the actual supply chain? So the shocks basically trickled down the supply chain. And what we saw were a lot of brands canceling orders, or at least at the supplier that I work for currently, we put on hold a lot of orders. So if we had already produced the fabric, we would basically made a promise that we could store it until the next season came around or until this season, uh, essentially. And for those that we hadn't started to produce, we basically canceled the order. We saw our production fall by, I mean, basically become non-existent. And now we're still operating at 50%. And so you can imagine the economics of that, what that means for a fabric uh, manufacturer. And we see that the losses were catastrophic. And even down to manufacturers and garment makers, what was happening is products were being made and and brands were basically just leaving them there. They weren't paying for them. So there were inventory and materials that were lying fallow. 
there were no requirement for brands to pay these invoices. The unfair burden was placed on factory and garment workers. Right. So like you said, these large orders were being canceled, placing a really large burden on factories and garment workers. But it was interesting because, you know, that dynamic of power that brands have is not new to the industry. The the pandemic was really just putting a magnifying glass on what was already going on. I'm curious what you guys think were maybe the biggest events or indicators that the industry was changing or even being in need of change, given the dysfunctions that we were seeing magnified in the pandemic? There were a number of systemic dysfunctions on the demand side of the fashion value chain that led to this precarious position. We were already seeing a pretty precarious market climate at the start of early 2020 with signs of economic recession. No one knew where we were really headed with the pandemic coming, but we had really set ourselves up for a difficult place with the oversaturation and overproduction that was that has been part of the uh, market landscape for some time. Fast fashion brands making 52 seasons a year. Luxury brands moved from two to six seasons. And retail has been just culminating to this place of needing innovation. Customers are wanting experiences over the stuff that they're buying. And the retail landscape has been shifting to pop-ups and campaigns. And you know, a, a testament to this is just the malls that are lying hollow and are just shells of what we used to know when we were younger. Novelty buying had swept retail channels as well, which meant a lot of product was unsellable and becoming overstock, which led to this kind of relentless system of liquidation cycles in the industry. And these are just symptoms of the dysfunctions that had been building for years. Burberry ended up burning, you know, the $36 million of merchandise whilst they were, you know, simultaneously releasing their forward-facing sustainability strategies. And even um, in January of this year, or early this year in 2020, we saw the cult favorite opening ceremony close their doors even before the pandemic hit. So we saw all these indicators of where the industry was headed, and it wasn't going to just be Barney's who was needing to innovate. Uh, The fashion industry was a bubble that was truly ready to burst. Lauren, can you tell us in greater detail what you were seeing on the supply side before the pandemic even hit? Yeah, so, you know, the, the biggest symptom of the dysfunction on the supply side that people are familiar with is the collapse of Rana Plaza, which was a devastating accident in the apparel industry that injured and killed thousands of people. Um, and it really got the attention of particularly consumers around the supply chain dysfunction that was happening, kind of similar to the child labor scandals of the 90s that happened at Nike. They were kind of these big events that came to the public consciousness around human rights and social justice issues in our supply chains. But, you know, as you're talking about, we're seeing the symptoms of a bigger problem on the demand side, the collapse of the Rana Plaza and other, you know, fatal incidents that have happened since, as well as the labor scandals at Nike in the 90s, they're really just symptoms of a bigger problem that was happening in the industry. And part of those symptoms were really a factor of the demand that we were seeing, this overproduction that you talked about, the overproduction, overconsumption that was putting a lot of strain on manufacturers. So what we were seeing is that manufacturers were continually being asked to produce more product in tighter lead times and for cheaper prices. And at the same time, the industry was trying to move toward a more sustainable model 
and asking that of manufacturers. So you had both like these manufacturing production constraints as well as higher expectations around performance for sustainability metrics, both on the environmental side, but also on the social side. You know, it's not just the pressures that are being put on manufacturers themselves, you know, the factory owners and managers, but then the the factory workers. So they have long been subjected to really long working hours, pressure to meet quotas, unsafe and hazardous working conditions, and all of this for low wages. And we even see this in the United States. This isn't you know, restricted to areas of the world where a lot of us have never been. Even in Los Angeles, where I live, we see garment workers who are still being paid on a piece rate system, despite a law that's been in effect for 30 years that's supposed to protect them against sub-minimum uh, wage earnings. Uh, there was a vote that was supposed to come to session in the state assembly just the other week, and unfortunately it didn't come to vote, but the goal of that was to rectify the reality that garment workers in Los Angeles are being paid below a minimum wage because of their being subject to a piece rate system. So, you know, we have these like labor issues, the hazard and and human rights issues on the supply chain. But then of course, we also have environments being negatively impacted by the way that we produce the degradation that's caused in our manufacturing processes, um, particularly looking at things like the pollution of waterways. And this is predominantly impacting communities of color. And so, you know, this already was happening and then the pandemic happened and it's been like yet another event that is demonstrating the dysfunction that's happening in our supply chain. The collapse of the Rana Plaza happened now it was like five or six years ago. So now it's like the pandemic is this next event. It was Nike in the 90s, then Rana Plaza in the early 2010s, and now we have the pandemic. So hopefully we'll see some, some shifts happening. But it's interesting because, you know, we have all these businesses struggling during the pandemic, both on the manufacturing side, but also on the brand side. We're also seeing some businesses do better than others um, and in different ways. Lauren, like you said, we're really seeing some of these businesses do better than others. And Danielle, I'm curious, who are you seeing fare better right now? You really have this different vantage point than us because you're in Milan. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a rough ride for everyone. And I don't think we quite know what the results of this crisis are going to be since we are still technically in the middle of it. So I think people are are just kind of on edge and hoping to continue to operate and stay open in the meantime, despite there still being cases of coronavirus everywhere around us. So personally, I saw that the brands that are more conscious, more minded regarding sustainability and responsible production seem to not skip a beat. Whereas others seem to really have to, they didn't seem to be prepared or were less agile and able to respond to, to this crisis and, and to the fact that their supply chain had been completely turned upside down. So it's interesting that you're talking about Maybe brands who are already looking towards sustainability, which we could say kind of falls under this conception of like newer ways of doing business or fresher ways of doing business or faring better. It also seems like the pandemic has accelerated changes that were already happening, like toward away from the legacy business model of like reliance on B2B and brick and mortar distribution toward direct consumer. I'm curious what you think about the balance of that, because there are obviously different considerations. You know, 
direct-to-consumer innovation doesn't necessarily mean sustainability considerations and agility in the supply chain doesn't necessarily mean sustainability. I'm curious if you're seeing any sort of difference between the two as the pandemic has put more pressure on brands and their value chains. Well, I do think the direct-to-consumer model is something that is going to grow And we see, or at least this is, I'm just speaking personally and and kind of what I saw through this whole, the last few months, and that brands are looking to have, to do kind of more collaboration, special kind of collections. And I do think that's something that is going to continue to grow. It's interesting to see responsible purchasing practices, if they were already employed at a company, that that is actually helping a company be more uh, resilient right now. Danielle, you had brought up Stella McCartney in a conversation we had and their effective forecasting. Really, that's a responsible purchasing practice. So a sustainability commitment that they've made. And that commitment to sustainability is something that they're taking to their consumer as well as embedding operationally in their company is making them a more resilient brand right now to go through the pandemic. What are we seeing with other luxury brands? I think, like Lauren had said, this is just accelerating changes that were already in the making. And I've at least read and seen that a lot of brands, luxury brands, are really wanting to revert back to having a two-season year because they were just, I mean, they were worn out they were seeing all of their hard work get sold at discounts basically you know a few months after being in stores and i've heard a lot of criticism for the fact that you see you know seasons or clothing that is out of season on sale such as swimsuits for sale in february and heavy wool coats for sale in july and so i think there is a big push on luxury for luxury brands you know, on part of the design team or creative directors and even CEOs who are really reconsidering this kind of incessant cycle and it just not making sense. It's not sustainable. And I think hopefully this is not just talk and we'll see things come to fruition and, and brands being smart and realizing that they can no longer operate like this because it's just wasteful in so many ways. I hope what we're going to see is that brands that are committed to responsible purchasing practices and sustainability through their supply chain are going to see the value of deepening their supplier relationships during this time and create like really bolstering those relationships instead of backing away from responsible purchasing practices due to their budget restraints. I mean, I do think that brands are going to be held more accountable. I think this has really shined a light on all of these kind of inequalities and unsustainable practices. And I I do think that consumers are going to demand or are more cognizant of these issues. And I don't know if brands can continue producing and working in the ways they did a decade ago. Right. So we're, we're talking about this speeding up of transformations kind of catalyzed by the pandemic it's interesting that you talk about cat maybe like a further adoption of responsible purchasing practices because in a way they've made supply chains more agile um, or resilient, I guess you could say. I'm curious if you both think that 
we'll be able to capture this opportunity toward deeper transformation and innovation away from these unsustainable ways of doing business away from, you know, the overproduction, but not just that the lack of like deep partnership in supply chains across the board. Of course, there are like really wonderful examples, particularly in the sustainability space of brands that have adopted true partnership with their, with their manufacturers, but that's not necessarily an approach across the board. I'm curious if, if you think that the industry will see the impacts of the pandemic as a symptom of these things that we've been talking about and catalyze the opportunity to transform some of the ways we're doing business to not only create more resilient supply chains, but also more equitable supply chains. Brands that don't see this as an opportunity to both build resiliency in their supply chain and meet consumer demand are inevitably not going to make it through the next couple years of business. Legacy brands are going to have to let go of that old business model of, you know, forcing manufacturers to meet quotas, deadlines. It just leads to this completely inequitable system like we've talked about. But customers are more aware than ever. They're not just asking for buzzwords of transparency. I think that younger customers are interrogating who they're buying from and why uh, in such a deeper way to a point of even anti-consumerism that it's just going to be such an interesting system to watch play out, especially with the pandemic overlaying on top of the system that was already being created. I think customers are starting to question their own materialism, question overconsumption. And the conditions of the pandemic are actually creating a climate where people are asking if this will be the end of consumerism as we've known it. It will definitely lead to more thoughtful purchasing, the cutting down of discretionary budgets in every household, and hopefully purchasing that supports consciousness in supplier relationships as well. That's an interesting thought or consideration. One of the things that I guess I'm curious about as it relates to this moment that we're in, just kind of going back to the reality that, you know, as we talked about earlier, we've had big incidences for the industry, obviously not in the same way, like the pandemic is creating an economic crisis, um, has really like spurred on a crisis that definitely was building, maybe would not have happened as quickly. But we've kind of demonstrated time and time again that the industry has a hard time considering the entire system. And I don't think that that's from a lack of desiring to make progress and address our issues, but we do have a tendency to address symptoms as opposed to systems. And I wonder how much consumer pressure toward brands, kind of like we've seen with transparency, like a call toward transparency has led to positive things but it hasn't necessarily led to like radical transformation of our supply chains. I wonder what the limitations of this moment will be in terms of our collective understanding of what causes the problems that we see. And if we will utilize this opportunity to create a better world for ourselves. What do you guys see as being the the things that actually need to change for us to transform the value chain? I think we need to see more women in CEO positions, in president positions, in the C-suite of a lot of these fashion brands, because 
that is something that is really lacking currently. And we know that women tend to think in more holistic ways. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like, you know, generally we've talked about this need for innovation, but not specifically like what are the conditions that create innovation? And, you know, bringing in a point about who is leading our companies, I think is an important action point. Like there is a reality that there is a good old boys club not just in the fashion industry, you know, we're a microcosm of the global economy, but a lot of the ways in which we do business rely on an old model that were very exclusive and didn't necessarily have to react to the like real on the ground reality of the world because the club was so exclusive. And so I think that's a really important point to make, like who it's not even so much about like who's making decisions in companies, but what sort of cultures are we fostering? And are those cultures toward innovation? Like the way that we've been doing business for a long time now is really predicated on there has to be a business case for something, for a change to actually be made. And so I think that's where we've seen more of an adoption of sustainability practices, particularly on the environmental side, because there can be like a really clear financial business case for why we should, for example, create business models that are allowing us to capture a second revenue stream from a product that we've already created through resale. Like there's a financial incentive to doing that. And it's also better for the environment. I want us to use this opportunity, you know, where we are in the pandemic to look at like, what are the limitations of the business case, because it can only bring us so far. If we're only looking at the business case, I don't think that we'll really ever address the elephants in the room, which are overproduction, unjust and unequal power dynamics, uh, both of which are legacies of colonialism and the connection between the two of them, that the demand that the industry has created, that brands and marketers have created drives a lot of what we do. And so much of our decision-making as it relates to business models is driven by that demand and by that paradigm. I just wonder too about this kind of these this capitalist system that the fashion industry is a perfect model of and how we are obsessed with this perpetual growth. Yet we live in a finite planet. We don't have the resources to perpetually grow. You know, it's it's really why we are where we are, why these power dynamics exist, why paternalism in the industry is so prolific is that there's really no education around economic and social history for professionals that end up at a brand and are in relationships with global suppliers, but have no cultural sensitivity or awareness to the relationship that they may be perpetuating. And this is just microcosms exist within companies and then outside of companies, their external relationships that really need to have a historical uh, education to be in the position to make decisions about uh, about their supply chain. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think we've touched on it a little bit throughout the conversation, um, maybe a little bit earlier, responsible purchasing practices. But I think this really ties in to the approach of responsible purchasing practices and the need for the industry to expand our concept of what that really means. You know, in the sustainability space, not even all brands who define themselves as sustainable 
have responsible purchasing practices. It's still a minority. And so I think the proliferation of responsible purchasing practices into the general approach of apparel companies will be really important. And us looking critically about like, well, what are the components we need to have in that approach? Having a statement is great, but there are a lot of factors that go into actually being able to purchase responsibly. To your point, Kat, about education and awareness on the economic and social history of globalization, colonialism, neocolonialism, and how those all feed into the way that we do, the ways that we do business today. So I think that that's something that we have a huge opportunity to expand in a way that could really make some progress in the industry and and almost influence our approach and our lens for the work that we do, not just like changing the work that we do, but bringing in a different knowledge and awareness to the, to the work itself. It's interesting though, and sad that there's really nothing new here. We've talked about how the problems that existed before the pandemic had been building for so long. There's so many solutions that we've implemented. We've created an entire industry within the fashion industry for social compliance and sustainability. And yet we're still trying to solve the same problems. Right. And it's really a question of, you know, is the pandemic going to be a turning point? Are we going to, you know, really fully, holistically start looking at the systemic challenges of the industry, the way that we've set up this system to address the problems that we've created. And that's exactly what we want to explore with you here in the next episode and the many episodes to come. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Unspun is produced by Cambridge House and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake. Cover art by Estate Design Studio. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.